Today on the Hakings Podcast, I'm joined by Jeff Jackson. You might have seen him on uh, social media as Alpha Alpha J Jackson or Forge Fanatic. Go ahead and search that. Today, he's going to talk us through sorghum, something that I don't know anything about and I'm anxious to learn. Tell me what you do. So what I do and what I tell people when they ask me, they say, Jeff, so what do you do during the day? My job when I wake up every morning is to help people make the biggest pile of high quality feed that I can. Now, that might be making product recommendations. It might be troubleshooting a problem field and everything in between, fertility, bugs, the whole gamut, right down to once in a while, I'll handle some questions on harvest and harvest management, covering feed out rates. It it goes all the way to the end. But my, my job is to take it from dirt on one end to a consumable product on the other. Sure. And, and who do you work for in doing all of that? I work for Lando Lakes. And within Lando Lakes, there are multiple divisions. And I work for the agronomy division that we have branded Winfield United. And I help support the cropland seed brand that's under Winfield United. So as you see our logo used, it's cropland by Winfield United. So I basically help service the alfalfa, corn silage, and forage sorghum divisions for our company as a forage specialist. Now, we're talking about a Hay Kings podcast. That's pretty exciting to some folks. (laughs) I want to learn something about sorghum. Can you help me out with that today? I'm from Washington State, and I'm here to tell you I've never right. seen sorghum. Right. So the interesting thing about sorghum, too, is that there are certain parts of the country that have used it extensively. Certain parts of the country, I would say that I'm learning, too, that maybe used some sorghum at one point in their history. And, and maybe they had a challenge at some point, and they decided not to use it anymore. And other parts that, you know, what, we're we're breaking ground and getting into new stuff all the time where there's beginning to be, in my understanding, a better acceptance and a a new way to look at making feed for livestock. So, you know, the great thing about it is it's a a very resilient crop. It's very versatile. It handles a lot of adverse conditions like some of the more acidic or alkali type soils. They handle that type of scenario quite well. You get in your heat stress and drought stress environments. They love heat. So a 75-degree day, it's a whole home situation. Other crops kind of like that. Sorghum loves it, 85 degrees. You know, a, a corn crop's going to shut down at about 86 degrees mm-hmm. for respiration. Sorghum doesn't seem to bother it up to 100, 102 degrees. You get those hot days, hot nights. Sorghum loves it. Corn doesn't take it quite as well. But then again, on the other side, we get or a week that we've just had further south and hasn't broke 65 degrees all week. You get those kind of summers and cool weeks and it just doesn't grow much at all. So the neat thing about it is it's very versatile. As we start looking at water use efficiency, Mm -hmm. it's a big buzzword, right? Yeah, of course. Wells in different parts of the country and or aquifers that are starting to become challenged for moisture and, and staying at appropriate levels. So you take a plant that basically uses 60% 60% of the water that a corn plant uses, you've just, you're, you're 40% more water use efficient in relative terms. So if it takes uh, basically two inches of water to make a ton of corn silage, it takes about an inch to an inch 20 to make that same ton of forage sorghum. Wow. For guys that have limited water or they have to allocate which pivot it goes to or decide what crop they're going to grow based on how much water they get allocated for the year and snowfall and all these other things, 
it wins quite quickly. So I think that's what's fun about it is you get the opportunity to take moisture-stricken areas. We're effectively making the same tons of digestible fiber, and you still have to add a little bit of energy. That's probably one of the parts that's a drawback is that we don't have the grain corn starch component. Mm -hmm. So we need to add a little energy to the same ton of feed, but pretty fun crop to work with from those things. And that's, that's one of the big, and now we've gotten into more of these emergency crops. The other great thing is that it it likes a little warmer soil. Like last year when we had prevent plant acres across the Midwest and we're getting into June Mm -hmm. and July and they've decided we just absolutely can't plant corn for feed right now. Well, guess what? Sorghum loves the warm soil. We tell people do not put it in the ground unless it's 60 degrees or warmer. Then here we have this um, this amazing emergency crop, if you mm-hmm. will, that will grow quite quickly. It loves heat. It loves warm soil. You know, you can harvest it like you do corn silage if you have a forage sorghum planted in, in rows and or put it in a windrow, wilt it for two days, get it down to 65% moisture and chop it like you would uh, any other forage crop with a hay head, put it in a bunker, stores, feeds, you know. So there's all those kinds of things. It's really, it's really kind of a unique deal. You could cut it for hay. You could graze different sorghum crops. Take me through the yield potential. So the yield potentials, people always ask, well, what's it going to yield? So I'll tell you. So in this Midwest environment where we're at, I'm familiar with the acres that are going to do 250 bushel corn down to 80 bushel corn, right? Mm -hmm. A 250 bushel corn environment. I do believe with the right heat's probably one of the biggest things. You need moisture, obviously, but heat's a big driver. But we have 35, we have 35 ton replicated trials in, say, northeast Nebraska, southeast South Dakota that we've had 32 to 35 ton forage sorghum silage with a puny grain head. And you're talking about a, a dry matter content, right? And we're talking um, as fed 65% moisture being 35 tons. So nine to 10 ton of dry matter. And single cutting that puts it on. Yeah. Single cutting. So our tonnage can be very similar to a corn silage tonnage. Mm-hmm. In terms of dry matter as well, right? So that's what I think is unique about it is you don't have forty five percent of that weight being an ear. Yeah, it's mostly plant material. And the dry matter tonnage you just talked about there is kind of where we are on alfalfa yield, in in some of the highest producing regions in the country. That in some of the higher producing regions, exactly. Yeah, right, right. Eight or nine ton to the acre is inside a reality in some places on alfalfa. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Kind of an amazing crop to deal with. And again, we're getting into different places where people are um, learning how to feed livestock differently. They've been doing corn silage their entire life. This is what we do. This is what we do. And now we've found a crop that, hey, we can plant it a little bit late, still get some amazing tons out of it. Mm, Doesn't need as much water. It's probably only going to take about 125 pounds of nitrogen instead of 225 pounds of nitrogen. Hmm, there's a savings. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden we've raised the same tons cheaper, quicker actually, because we can start in June and be done by September 1st when they're chopping their corn and have the same yields. Wow. Kind of a neat little animal to work with. It doesn't work perfectly for everyone every time. It's just like anything else. There's always these little challenges and if we don't 
pay attention to some of the finite details about management. You could have a few crosswords to say, and we have, as the, as the one article I helped uh, put together for Hayden Forge Grower one day, it says, there are haters and there are lovers. <laughs> right. As with just about any piece of equipment or any new technology or anything else, it's all the same, right? Yeah, there's no question. But uh, the great thing is, is when somebody calls and says, hey, what should I plat? Or would you have a suggestion? You know, we go right back down through it, and I'll basically ask them, how do you, what do you want in the end? Are you feeding dry cows, lactating cows, beef cows? Do you want high crude protein? Do you want just all about a big pile of fiber? How are you going to harvest it? What equipment do you have? What's your labor source look like? All of those questions come back into it. If somebody really wants me to give them a good solid answer, we've, we've got to do some diligent work and figure out the right scenario for their situation. And it might be the difference between uh, a conventional variety at four pounds to the acre or a BMR eight pounds. You're talking about seeding rates. Yeah. Ah, uh-huh, okay. That's a fairly small seed if you're only talking four to eight pounds to the acre. So a lot of these sorghum crops are going to run right about somewhere between 15,000 and 19,000 seeds per pound. So we're talking a 60,000 to 100,000 plant population, roughly. Yep. So you're going to double or two and a half times what a corn population is most of the time, mm-hmm. depending on what environment you're in, I guess, too. Mm-hmm. But So yeah, planting rate becomes a another point that um, I got on a little bit of a pedestal last summer as we were going through these prevent plant acres where people question me a lot when I will say plant this particular product at 3.7 pounds. Don't go over four and a quarter. Uh, I get the pushback. Well, that's not how we raise sorghum. We, we plant 10 pounds or 15 pounds and particular individuals are trying to get 20 pounds planted of a single cut forage sorghum. And I said, well, think about that. If you're planting 20 pounds, you have 15,000 seeds per pound. That's 300,000 seeds per acre that you're going to put into a 30-inch row. Those plants will probably be an inch and a half apart. And you want this thing to stand how long? So then we get into these discussions about planting rates. And my point to some would be is that when some of these higher planting rates came about, it was about conventional product quite a few years ago. Um, we needed palatability. So let's plant as many as we can and still kind of have it stand up because we need thin stalks that we can kind of get palatable for the livestock. Well, then we switched to a BMR type product. Now we can have a little bigger stem. Explain what BMR is. Yeah, the brown midrib trait. So the brown midrib trait basically is a mutant, a mutagenic trait that's introduced into these plants that turns the midrib of the leaf brown. And technically, in the plant, it helps reduce the lignin produced by the plant. And since lignin is the undigestible portion that's like rebar that holds the plant up, if we reduce the lignin a little bit, we have higher fiber digestibility. So if you have higher fiber digestibility, you can have more dry matter intake. And generally, that leans to higher feed efficiency, better rate of gain, and or more milk production because they don't get bulk filled. They can utilize the fiber that they're eating and they can continue to eat and produce more. You were talking about the diameter of the stock. Yeah. Like I said, I've never seen this at all. How big can the stocks get? And then what are you shooting for when you're talking about your dairy rations, maybe? You can take this thing and push the population quite high. 
And it's like any corn crop that you might have seen. I shouldn't say every corn crop. Corn plants are different too. Where the higher the density gets pushed, the taller they grow faster to, to compete for sunlight. So you get a thinner stalk. And it could be as small as your pinky finger, for example. And obviously, some people are going to have meat cleavers for hands, and other guys are going to have more petite hands. But uh, from the size of your pinky to, you know, if you get a really low population and that thing can flex a lot, it might be two, three inches in diameter, almost the size of a person's wrist at times. You can get some big stalks. And the more digestible and the more palatable you make it, then that bigger stock doesn't have quite a detractive piece as far as going through a, a silage cutter and going to a, a bunk somewhere or a pile because you can have very palatable pieces instead of just a shy, just a little bit better than willow sticks. My comparison for these guys was, you know, back in the day, you had to plant a high density to get thinner stems so you could do something with it. And now that we have a BMR plant, we don't need that plant density. We can let them tiller. So we have BMR plants today that might put two, three, four, up to six tillers on it if there's enough room around it, right? We get a lot of tons. We can have tillering. All these things can happen. So the other thing that people need to realize is myself as a a product manager, of sorghum products, we do research with these things. We do performance trials. We test populations at different levels. And we've kind of tried to sort this stuff out before we bring it to market. And if I'm telling you five pounds, it's not that I want to sell less as a marketing company, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's that I agronomically want to do what's right for the grower to make sure they maximize what they're doing and not have a nightmare at the end of the day. So Sometimes it's hard for them to understand that they've been doing things one way for 25 years and I'm telling them to change the paradigm, but I've, I've also tracked the product that's coming to market and I know what it's going to do and how it will perform the best. So it's different and sometimes we get challenged. I've actually had customers walk away before because they said, you know, your stuff you're telling me is not right. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's fine. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Anyway, so plant population does have a, a driver. Something that people need to be thinking about, too, is that you might go to store A and say, hey, what's a, and just just flat out, just say, hey, what's a bag of sorghum cost? Let's say it's just for simple math, let's say it's 100 bucks. And you're talking 50-pound bags. And we're talking a 50-pound bag, and it's 100 bucks, and they're going to plant it at 10 pounds to the acre. So you get five acres out of that bag, right? Mm-hmm. $100, five acres, 20 bucks an acre. Mm-hmm. Or you might have a guy that says, uh, you come to the store B, and they say, what's sorghum cost? It says 140 bucks, but you're going to plant five pounds. So now you get, uh, excuse me, 10 pounds out of that bag, and it's $14 an acre. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know the planting rate, or you don't know the product well enough, and you're stuck on this 10-pound deal, and you go to store B and say 140 bucks, and I'm only going to get five acres out of that, so that's pretty expensive seed. I'm going to go back to store A. Right. We need to be thinking about those things so that you really didn't get the value you thought you did because at store B, it was more expensive per bag, but it was less per acre. And at the end of the day, it's your per acre cost that really makes a difference. So those are some little keys that I try to tell people to pay attention to because they're not all created equal. And uh, you're getting different types of products planted at different rates, different potentials. And anyway... 
it gets to be a, a, an interesting conversation at times, let's just say. I want to dig into this but, a little bit, these interesting conversations. Farmers maybe have a, a reputation for being stuck in their way a little bit, and we come by that reputation honestly, I think. As you're out and about marketing these products, how do you deal with that we've always done it this way mentality? I would tell you that as I began my career 15 years ago, I was probably just like any other person that didn't really want to upset anybody, didn't want to throw any waves out there. And you just try to find out the simplest and least disruptive way to help a person get what they want sometimes instead of what they need. So you just kind of go, okay, yes, thank you. Have a great day. We'll find that for you. And then a little bit older I got, a little bit thicker skin you get, the more experience you get, the different things that you see in my ability to go over nine or 10 states and see a lot of different things. Then you start getting the mentality where you go, well, you know, have you ever considered this, this, and this? If you can bring in examples and ideas and maybe even a little bit of a testimonial, you take a little bit of that defensiveness away about, well, this is the why we've always done it. I think it's it's trying to help people understand that and not tell them that they're doing things wrong or that it's not acceptable today to do it that way, but just somehow lightly ask the question, have you ever considered this? And here's why I think you should look at it in a different light. So you still need to give people options instead of you know trying to dictate the route they need to take. I mean, just like the platform that we're on today, we could talk about, I mean, I could probably have 5,000 questions or comments on what we've already talked about that I, do you really know what you're talking about? Well, you know what? Every little micro environment, every little region, every state, maybe even across the road from where I'm sitting, you'd do something different than what I would have to do on this piece of dirt with this fertility level and the organic matter that I have. So understanding that not everything is set in stone and you can tweak things and uh, things change. So a lot of times I have to give recommendations from a 10,000 foot view up front and then we dial into every acre behind the scenes. So you're almost making this sound like a science maybe. Oh, you know what? There (laughs) might be some, yeah, exactly. There just might be a little science behind this, but I, I think that's sometimes, you know, as we talk about the Hay Kings site and things that go on there, I think that's one thing that sometimes I would encourage people to be a little bit more open-minded and not, not get after somebody for the way they do it, but maybe ask them why. Say, help me understand why you do it that way. And have you ever considered this versus, you know, just slapping somebody on the wrist and telling them that's, there's no way, right? Yeah, it- And it doesn't matter whether it's a new variety, a new crop, a new piece of equipment, or somebody might say the wrong piece, the wrong color of equipment. Oh, absolutely. Instead, I wish folks would just ask why, just a little bit more. I'll have to give my wife credit for that. She's asked me that question a couple times. Can you, because you know how spouses sometimes don't exactly have the same idea. And she would say, can you help me understand why this, this, and this? And you go, hmm, that was a pretty cool, subtle, soft way of saying, (laughs) I don't agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Can you help me understand why? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Reading between the lines. (laughs) Absolutely. But it wasn't like I got slapped in the face. It just made me think about, okay, why did I make that decision? Let me help her understand. 
Yeah. So right, right. And sometimes, you know, as you we we're just talking there, people get uh, a little bit squirrely about varieties and companies and colors of equipment. And you know what? It might be my best friend is a dealer. I like him. He likes me. I'm going to get great service. Yep. You might not have the same feeling in your neighborhood. That's okay. Mm-hmm. But I do today. So yeah, all those kind of things. Absolutely. And I, that applies across the board in, in just about every industry and every element of society. There's yeah. there's all those trends. And realistically, anything that's out there today, they are really good to a high level for some reason or they wouldn't be publicly marketed. That's a really good point. You're talking more about uh, equipment now, but I, that probably applies to the seed varieties that you're dealing with. I started that comment in the seed business. So when people would say, hey, such and such, man, their varieties are just horrible. You know what? Realistically, everybody in the seed business today that can commercially market something has to be pretty good somewhere. You just have to figure out the right fit for it and manage it the way that product is meant to be managed. Mm -hmm. And I learned that probably first in the corn business because I could take the best corn hybrid in five different county plots, and if I didn't do the right things with it, I could make it the worst yielding hybrid on anybody's farm. Or I could take some of the bottom of the county test plot, and if I understood the genetics and the background and the management style that it needed, Mm -hmm. I could probably make it the best variety a person had on their farm. Mm-hmm. So I think it goes, everybody has good stuff. It's just how do you make it work in your scenario? And not everybody's scenarios are the same. A very sincere thank you for being on the podcast and sharing your thoughts. This has really been a lot of fun to learn about these new crops, something that us northerners, us farmers of the north, don't know anything about. So thank you for sharing. 